If you have a Bible, turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We'll go before the Lord with a word of prayer. Father, we just, as a body, as a church here, we just come before you. And just ask, Lord, that you'll speak to all of our hearts. I ask that you'll give us all honest hearts that we can examine ourselves by your word and to know where we're at with you. And if adjustments need to be made, we'll make them. And we just thank you for the truth you've given us here in your word and for the help your Holy Spirit will give us today to open our eyes to see what you want us to see each individually. And we thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. So, you know, the question, what must I do to be saved, is probably a question everybody at one point in here has asked. And not everybody in the world, I would say, ask it, but it's a question a lot of people ask. You know, you want to have a secure future life. And like we talked about before, you know you're going to die. So what must I do to be saved to avoid that? And, you know, most religions are going to give you some sort of answer. So, like, I don't know how many of you remember the old cult with David Koresh. <laughs> Down there, the Branch Davidians claimed to be God in the flesh, a prophetic Messiah. And he would tell these women, you know, just follow me and have babies by me and you'll enter into heaven. And there was a whole lot of women that thought that sounded like a fun way to get there. And they ended up in a bad way, didn't they? So Islam, which, you know, if, if you all want to know, every, just throwing this in, every religion besides true Christianity, I'm not saying churches that call themselves Christian, but biblical Christianity, every other religion is a works religion. Christian, true Christianity is the only religion that says your works are not going to get you there. It is literally a gift from God from beginning to end. Now, obviously, I'm not saying there are no works involved. I'm not saying that. But it's a gift. So that brings me to what must I do to be saved? Well, Islam will say that you must follow the five pillars of Islam to please Allah and just to hope to obtain eternal life. They will never tell you you can be certain of it. They think Christians are arrogant to say we can know that we have everlasting life. They'll say that is arrogant. So... For instance, in their Sarah, it teaches to those who believe and do deeds of righteousness hath Allah promised forgiveness and a great reward. And the Quran teaches salvation is through submission to the most merciful God. And it says this, those who remember God always and in prayers, and this is what they have standing, sitting, lying down on their sides, and think deeply about the creation of the heavens and earth, saying, O Lord, you have not created all this without purpose. Glory to you. Those are the ones that have maybe a hope through all their praying on their sides and standing and sitting and all the things they have you do, all these works day in and day out. They say that's what you must do to have eternal life. And so people that are in Al-Qaeda and ISIS, here's what it says in the Quran. And if you are killed in the cause of Allah or die, then forgiveness from Allah and mercy are better than whatever they accumulate in this world. In other words, if you're willing to sacrifice your life, it doesn't matter what else you've done or have. You are guaranteed you're going to make it in with Allah, which is why they'll do what they do. That's what they think they can do to have eternal life. And that's the nature of men, fallen men. They, they want to know, hey, what can I do to have everlasting life? And, you know, wouldn't, honestly, if someone said, hey, all you need to do is find a track and every day for 10 years run around that track 10 times every morning, and at the end of 10 years, you'll have everlasting life. People be like, man, just where is the place? Yeah. That's something I can do. That's, oh, I can get a hold of that. And they like that. That's the way people are. We all like that. But two men in the Bible in the New Testament came up to Jesus, two men, and we're going to look at one of them today, and directly asked him that question, though, what must I do to have eternal life? So let's see what the answer is to this first person. And we'll begin in Luke 10, verse 25, and it says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he, Jesus, said unto him, You have answered right. This do, and you will live. 
But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, Well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever you spendest more, when I come again, I will repay you. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. And then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. So I'm just going to say, most people, their idea of a good Samaritan and what Jesus is trying to say is, the people that don't help people are bad, but the people that help people are good. And that that's the point of the story. And I would say it's not that that's not in the story, but that is not the point of his story in talking to this man. And you can read some really wild things when you go back through church history, how they allegorize and they want to make the oil represent something, the wine represents something, the donkey, uh, the inn is the church, Jesus is the good, or the good Samaritan, and all of this stuff. And it's not that complicated. It really isn't. So hopefully, we'll come to an understanding of what this parable is trying to teach us. So in verse 25, it says, beginning there, it says, a certain lawyer. Now, when, when most of us think of a lawyer, what do we think of? Thief. <laughs> right? But honestly, I, I, I'm, just, I'm joking, because honestly, if there's a lawyer watching, I don't want to get sued. No, but... <laughs> But I, I honestly, though, I have worked for, I just got through helping some people out at work four years back. I've worked for some really, really nice lawyers that were not thieves and would do anything to help you out in court. No, no they, really, they really were nice people. I'm, I'm serious. But typically, that's what we might think of. But here, they're also, what, they're experts in civil law, aren't they? But, and so, but we got need to make sure this is not the lawyer kind of lawyer we're talking about here. Now, he's an expert in law but it's in the Mosaic law, is what, the Old Testament. And here's the question, is he asking Jesus an honest question when he says, Master, what should I do to eternal life? And the answer, obviously, we know it says he's tempting him. What's he doing? He is baiting Jesus. So he's trying to get Jesus to say something against the law, isn't he? So he can find, have something to use against him, because He's been, what has the Lord been doing up to this point in his ministry? He's been doing nothing but angering the quote-unquote experts on the law by doing things they consider contrary to their traditions and their, what the law says by healing on the Sabbath, forgiving sin, fellowshipping with tax collectors and publicans. Oh, they think he's, he's doing stuff wrong. His way of looking at the law and the way we read it, they're opposites. And this man will trip him up. Because he's not seeing things right. That's what they think's going on here. So he's not asking an honest question. He already knows what he thinks. And that's like, I get, I get at prison, a guy comes up to me, you know, and he wants to know, he's asking me a question, do I think a practicing homosexual can be saved? And I'm thinking, you're trying to set me up here. And I'm just, you know, so what do you do when someone does something? You just ask him, well, what do you think? Right? <laughs> Because that's what Jesus does here. Look in verse 26. Rather than directly answering this guy's question, he's shrewd in a righteous way, isn't he? And he appeals to this man's vanity, doesn't he? He, says, he said unto him, well, what is written on the law? How readest it? Now, you're, you're the expert in the law. Just tell me how you read it. I'd really like to hear your opinion. So, man, you know, when someone asks you a question like that, it is hard not to, he's wanting to strut his stuff isn't he? How much does he knows about the law? And he's like, man, he's probably thinking to himself here, this guy knows how to discern quality people. 
and he knows he asked the right man that question. And I'm going to show him how a true scholar interprets the law, right? But here's the thing. We look at that, and it's funny, isn't it? Because we think, does this man think he's going to pull one over on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit? Because they, they start learning after a while, don't they? <laughs> These guys going to set him up, and it just comes right back on him, the wisdom of God, and it just they finally give up. No man durst ask him any more questions, because all it did was dig them in a hole they didn't want to be in. But... So Jesus asked him, and he's going to give an answer, isn't he? And we have that down in, in verse 27. And he gives a good answer. He says, he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. Well, that's the same answer Jesus himself gave in Matthew 22 when another lawyer came up to him and asked him what the greatest commandment was. So this guy's giving a good answer. It's the same answer the Lord gave, isn't it? Back when he does. Now, does anyone know, I'm sure some do, where thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength is found? It's in Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. We used to sing that song years back in our groups, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Remember, we used to, I used to like that song. It was a, a nice tune. And that was recited twice in the morning and the evening prayers by pious Jews. And so they would have all been familiar with it. And then their little phylacteries and the little things on their heads, that was there. The Shema. And the second, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, is found in Leviticus 19.18. Well, look what he gives. He's willing, Jesus is willing to call a spade a spade. The guy gave a good answer. He's not going to argue with him about his answer. It was a good answer. And look what he tells him in verse 28. He says, you have answered right. That's a good answer, he's saying. This do and thou shalt live. So he's saying, hey, Mr. Expert, you just follow your prescription and you will live. Well, I'm asking, is Jesus telling him something that this is something that he can do? By keeping the law, he can earn his salvation. Is that what the Lord's trying to say by that statement? Is he telling him, hey, you don't need the grace of God. You don't need the Holy Spirit. You don't need a new heart given you. Just do this and you'll live. Is that what the Lord's trying to say? And I think looking at this parable, we'll say, hey, that is not what he's saying. And especially to this guy. Because look, he is on the lawyers and the scribes and the Pharisees. And he, they're all summed up in one word, hypocrites. He's on their case. So we're in Luke 10. Just turn over one chapter and look what he has to say to the lawyers along with others. So Luke 11, 44 to 46, he says this, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are as graves which appear not and the men walk over them and are not aware of them. And then answered, here, these guys can't stay out of the mix. Then answered one of the lawyers and said unto him, Master, what you say reproaches us also. And he's like, oh, did I leave you out? And he said, well, woe unto you also, you lawyers. For you laid men with burdens grievous to be borne. And here's where you all are. And, but you yourselves, oh, you make people's lives miserable. But you yourselves won't touch one of the burdens with one of your fingers. And then look over in verse 52. He gets on him again. He says, verse 52, woe unto you lawyers. And this is a, man, how would you like to have this said to you? You're a religious leader of people. You have taken away the key of knowledge. You enter not in yourselves and them that were entering in, you hindered. Oh my you not only are, you, you've taken away that knowledge that will bring salvation to men by the way you teach this law. You're not going in yourselves. And worse than that, you're hindering those that would go in. That's a scathing rebuke. It really is. So I think this man would have fit the description based on what Jesus is saying. And Jesus knows who he's talking to. He knows this man's heart. This guy's not pulling anything. 
But if you could turn to one other place, put something there in Luke 10, and if you could t- turn to Romans 2, because I think this, this is what we have here, Romans 2. Paul's getting on the Jewish people that they're resting in the law and the the fact how God has blessed them with the law and the temple. In verse 17, Romans 2, 17, Paul says, Behold, you are called a Jew and restest in the law, and you make your boast of God, and you know his will, and you approve the things that are most more excellent, being instructed out of the law. And you're confident that you yourself, you're guiding the blind, a light. To them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Thou, therefore, which teachest another, do you not teach yourself? You that preach a man should not steal, are you a thief? You that say a man should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, do you commit sacrilege? You that make thy boast of the law through breaking the law, dishonorest? Thou God, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written, for circumcision verily profits if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, the fact that you're circumcised or baptized is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not the uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge you who by the letter and circumcision transgress the law? For he is not a Jew, which is one how? Outwardly. Neither is that circumcision that which is an outward circumcision in the flesh. But here's a Jew, a child of Abraham, is, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is where? Of the heart and in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God. And that's the way these guys were. They're going to teach this law. They're instructors, like he says here, of men, and yet they won't do any of it themselves. And he says God's name is blasphemed as a result of that. And that's where this lawyer that Jesus is talking to, that's where he fits in the scheme of things. So if you could go back to Luke 10... So what do we know when we read those kind of scriptures where Jesus is rebuking those lawyers and this man is saying, hey, he's got the right, he's saying the right thing, isn't he? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He's got the letter of the law, but he does not have the spirit of the law. And, you know, he has no heart, we know from what we just read, don't we? He has no heart for who? God or others. No heart at all. So that's why we have him move it on here in verse 29. He says, but he willing or he's desiring to justify himself. His heart's convicted him by the Lord. So he's wanting to justify himself. And he said unto Jesus, who is my neighbor? And here's the problem they had. They had a real tight circle of what a neighbor was. Listen to this. This is out of Sirach. It was, came around about 200 years, these wisdom sayings, these ethical teachings that these men would, would govern their lives by. And listen to this. This is what it says in this Sirach 12, 1 to 4. If you do good, know to whom you do it. Give to, to, to the devout, but do not help the sinner. Do good to the humble, but do not give to the ungodly. Hold back their bread and do not give it to them, for by means of it they might subdue you. Then you will receive twice as much evil for all the good you have done to them. That just doesn't quite sound like the Sermon on the Mount. But that's what this guy was following. That's what he really believed, and that's the way they should live. And it went on to say, For the Most High also hates sinners and will inflict punishment on the ungodly. And it ends by saying, Give to the one who is good, but do not help the sinner. So a neighbor <laughs> would have been a fellow Jew, but not 
a Gentile or a Samaritan. They were sinners. And I would ask, is that what the law actually taught? I mean, if you look at the law, that is not what the law taught. And here, I'll quote it to you. Leviticus 19, 18 says, You shall not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. So that's talking about any of the children of Israel. Not bear a grudge or avenge, but you shall love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Oh, they like that part of it. But then Leviticus 19, the same chapter, went on to say, The stranger that dwells with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and you shall love him as thyself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So we just read it. Contrary to the law, the typical Jew would not help anybody that was not of the nation of Israel. Didn't feel like they had to love them. Any love. They could hate them. But the lawyers and the Pharisees had it even narrowed down further than that. They wouldn't help anybody that wouldn't help them. And that's what a selfish, wicked, unregenerate heart does, doesn't it? It does. So they, they despised Gentiles, Samaritans, but also people that were Jews that were publicans, harlots, poor people, and widows, and on and on and on. So the lawyer here, we're seeing he is trying to justify the fact that he has twisted, they've twisted the meaning of who is a neighbor. And he wants Jesus, he's trying to get him to co-sign his definition of a neighbor so he can go home, have him a Heineken, and rest in the fact that this fresh young prophet agrees with their interpretation of the Bible, right? And he's got eternal life. That's what he wants Jesus to tell him. Oh, you've been loving your neighbor. You're good. You've got eternal life. Just relax. So here Jesus goes on then, when that man says this and asks, who is my neighbor? He goes on to give a parable to expose this man's heart. That's really what he's doing here. And show him his need for the new birth. Now, who has ever heard of the parable of the Good Samaritan as an evangelistic message? But that's what it is. That's what it is. So he starts this story off. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. So that road from Jerusalem to Jericho is 17 to 18 miles long, and it's real rocky with a lot of caves. And so it's where the bandits hung out. I think it was called Blood Road. Because those people that go there, you go by yourself, you are taking your life in your hands. And this guy here wasn't real smart, actually. So it just says a certain man. And the bottom, you know, I don't think this is even a true story. I think it's a story that Jesus is telling to make a point. So these people don't have, you know, they try to figure out, you know, what, what is this guy thinking? Why did the priest go on? The, the priest doesn't have a mind because he's just a, a figure Jesus is telling a story about, right? And people try to put all these interpretations on this parable, and they're making it way harder than it has to be. So it's not important who the man is. He's not even given a name. But these, st these thieves come, and they have to take his money. And look at the picture. They take his clothes all off of him and beat him. And what does it say there? They strip him of his raiment. They wound him and leave him laying there half dead. What's half dead? Well, that means he's not quite dead, but he is barely hanging on to life. He is not doing good, right? That's the way he's left. And look here, good news. It sounds like, so here's the problem. We know the whole story, but you sometimes got to read these things like you don't know what's coming next to really get the impact of it, right? That's the problem. We know the beginning from the end. We've read all these things too many times sometimes, and you lose it. But hey, listen, if you're reading this thing, and like all of a sudden, here... They're hearing this, these Jewish people, and it says in verse 31, and by chance, uh, we don't believe in chance, and what is Jesus saying doing that? You know, it's just like, but by chance, there came down a certain priest that way. Hey, good news, isn't it? A priest is coming by chance, and here this guy needs some help. And what is the priest? The priest is God's ordained mediator between him and the people to give them help, right? 
They taught the law to help the people. They'd offer sacrifices for sins for the people. They're supposed to be there to help the people. They're seeking God's will for the people through the Urim and Thurim, right? They, play, they pray the priest, they pray blessings over who? The people. They're supposed to be all about the people. If the people had an illness and had to be outside the camp, the priest is the one that inspected them for uncleanness to bring them back in. So you would think, oh, it's the priest comes by. He's here to help us. That's why God's ordained him, right? Surely he will help. Now here's the problem. These priests, as Paul said, they're also members of the aristocratic elite. They're upper crust snobs is what they really were, right? And they would have nothing to do with the common man. That's not how God set it up for them to be that way. So here's the thing. When you read this language, the language, when you read it in the Greek, it's like he sees that guy over there. He doesn't, he, as soon as he sees him there, he doesn't get near him. He is clear on the other side as far away from that guy as he can get on that road. Doesn't want anything to do with him. Not going to get involved. So what happens then? He passes on by on the other side, and then all of a sudden, well, here comes more help. A Levite, verse 32. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at that place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. And so at least this guy, when you read what happens there, you look at what it's saying, he doesn't get away from him. He actually walks up and looks at him. Now, man, that's almost worse, isn't it? Because you know what, what happens when you get that close and you see this guy barely breathing, stripped of his clothes, wounded, there's blood there. He can tell he's probably alive. He's seen more than the guy that never, the other guy's like, I'm not even getting close to that situation. I'm like, I didn't see it. But this guy, he's like curious, gets right up on him. And then he decides, hey, what does it say he did? Likewise, a Levite, when he was at that place, it says he came and he looked on him. And he did the same thing the priest did. He said he passed on the other side. And here's somebody dedicated. The Levites were dedicated to the service of God. We know they had no land for themselves, and so how did they live? They lived off the tithes of the people. You'd think he owed him a little something, wouldn't you? And what does he do instead? He sees this guy there in a bloody mess, a fellow Jew, and I'm not going to get involved in this whole thing. And just leaves him there. No help at all. And here's the, another thing we have to get in, understand is, at this point in this story, when they're hearing Jesus tell this for the first time, of all the people, that the Jews hearing this would have thought would have come to help this man. I'm telling you, the very last that they would have expected to hear would have been a Samaritan. The very last. That'd be like a, a preacher in the South saying that here's a wounded officer in the Southern Army and a black man comes to help him and telling a, telling a Southern audience that they'd be like, man, we don't want his help. You know, there's a lot of white people down there. They really, really hated black people. I mean, hated them with a passion. And I'm sure there's a lot that still do. But anyways, it would have been a Samaritan. And so we got to understand the parable. You have to understand the people and their times. Because there was a long-standing mutual hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. Because you all know the Samaritans were half-breed Jews, offsprings of Jews and imported people. And here's the thing. When they came back from captivity, here's why it works both ways. And they're getting ready to rebuild the temple. Do you know who were the ones that were resisting the rebuilding of the temple? It was the Samaritans. They did everything they could to stop the work of the temple being rebuilt. And there was no love lost then. And then later, when the Samaritans had built their own temple on Mount Gerizim in 128 B.C., the Maccabees came and wiped their temple out, just wiped it out. And when Jesus was a boy, the Samaritans came back and desecrated the temple. 
So you got this going. There is no love here between these two groups whatsoever. It's actually pure hatred. And that's why in John 4, when he meets that woman at the well, here's why she says this. Then said the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink of me, which am a woman of, the, of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. She knew that. Why are, why are you here asking me for water, even talking to me? The Jews would have nothing to do with them. They hated each other. And here, so we're in Luke 10. We don't have to go far back, and we'll see it manifested again. So look in Luke 9, beginning in verse 51, and it says this. And it came to pass, when the time was that he, Jesus, should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans, to make ready for him. And guess what? They did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, let's just get rid of these guys. We hate them anyways. Lord, will thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And it says they went to another village. So here, you know, we think of the story of the Good Samaritan, and what do we think? Man, what a nice guy. But they were like, they would be hearing this thinking, why him of all people? Are you using him as an example of someone doing the right thing? Why him of all people? And we think, oh, that guy's a nice guy. They didn't think that. You got to put yourself in their shoes. Well, look at the difference between these people. Verse 33. The Levite and the priest are walking on the other side, seeing this man in trouble, having nothing to do with him. But it says in verse 33, but a certain Samaritan as he journeyed, came where he was, and he likewise sees him. But what is going on with this Samaritan? What does it say? He had compassion. His bowels went out is what it means. Oh, man, I can't look at this and go on. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He doesn't avoid him, does he? He does just the opposite. Says he has compassion on him. And what we need to see is we ought to understand how costly of a sacrifice this man made to take care of this man. So to bind up his wounds, he would have had to literally rip up his clothes to be as rags, his own clothes. We've got to keep this hatred thing in mind here. That's what he's doing, tearing up his own clothes to bind this man's wound. And when it says pouring in oil and wine, you know why they had that when they traveled? That's how they made their meals. He's taking his dinner and lunch. I don't know how long he was going to be traveling. He's pouring it in this guy. He's sacrificing dinner, lunch, whatever. So this guy can have health. And it says he put him on his own beast. So we're talking about humility. That is humility. He hates this guy, the Samaritans. I mean, they typically would. And here he is. He's going to go into this inn walking now. No longer riding. He's got to walk while this Jew is on his animal. And he's bringing him to this inn. Walking beside his donkey. And it says he took care of him. And he didn't just say, like, he didn't just dump the body outside at the door and, like, here, here he is. You know, y'all, I've done my part which is what a lot of people would do, right? Like, I'm going to go so far, but that's it. And that's not the picture. This is like extreme love that we're seeing here. It says he took care of him. Now, the guy had to be going somewhere, didn't he? And he's having to take time from whatever it is he was going to do while he was on that road. It says he took care of him. And look, and not only that, you know how long he took care of him for? You know how long he sat with that man? Because that guy's probably on death's bed. And this guy is concerned about this Jewish man. All night long he sat up with him. You know how we know that? 
because it says he took care of him. And in verse 35, it says, and on the morrow when he departed, probably didn't sleep all night. So he took out two pence, and that would have been two days' wages. It would have lasted 24 days at that end is how long that would have been. But he leaves his visa card there with the owner of the inn because he says, hey, if it takes more than that, however long it takes for this man to be back up on his feet, charging on my charge card. Now, man, that would not be me. <laughs> I mean, that is really what he's doing. Whatever you have to spend, I got to go. Whatever it is, I've, I've been here, I see he's going to survive, and just whatever you have to spend, just let me know, and I'll take care of it when I come back. Now, that is love. There's love in every action. So he, he went way beyond what most of us would have considered adequate, didn't he? Believe me, he did. Because you know what he did? What was that thing? Thou shalt love thy neighbor. How are we supposed to love our neighbor? As ourselves. Isn't that what he's done? He's treated that man exactly like he would want to be treated. And I'll tell you, when, when people in my life have treated me like that, I am embarrassed. And, and it doesn't seem like it's not that people aren't willing to, but, you know, it doesn't happen all that often to any of us, does it? It's not that we don't have, I mean, there's been a lot of love shown here and all that. I remember one time, <laughs> I tell this story, my, my, I was in a mental hospital back when I was 17 years old, and I was in a really bad way. And my sister and a friend, that did, she didn't even know me. They went on a two-week fast for me to be delivered out of my situation. And my sister wrote me that letter and said that, and she said, the Lord spoke to me and said, he's going to deliver you out of, I'm, I'm, I'm in this mental hospital, I'm not a Christian yet. I get this letter from my sister, you know, this friend of mine, I've been fasting two weeks for you, and God spoke to me and said, he is going to deliver you from all of this. And I, I broke down crying. I'm like, man, I've never had anybody care for me like that, plus the fact that God cared enough to put it on their heart to do it. And he did deliver me. But I mean, that, to me, that is really going the extra mile, isn't it? So, especially the sister who doesn't, not my sister, the sister up north that doesn't even know me. Fasted two weeks for me. And I needed it. I probably needed six months. Wish they, wish they would have kept going. So look here in verse 36. Jesus asked him, he says this. He says, now which of these three think thou was neighbor unto him that fell amongst the the uh, thieves. Now look, it's obviously it's not rocket science, is it? It's not intended to be. The answer is obvious. But you know what that does? You know what that question Jesus asked does? It exposes this man's heart when he asked that. Because it is hard for him to give an answer. You know why? You know how I know that? Listen to what his answer. When Jesus says, which of them is neighbor unto him? Does the man say the Samaritan? He can't get it out of his mouth, can he? It's he, not the Samaritan. Oh, it's like it's that one, he. He that showed mercy on him. He just can't say it. But here, here's the thing. Jesus doesn't push it with him, though, does it? He's made his point clear. And so what does he tell the man? He says, go and do thou likewise. So look, we got to go back to the beginning of this. What was the man's initial question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? And we come right down to the end of this parable, this story, and what does Jesus say? Do what you just said. Go and do thou likewise. And I'm going to tell you, that guy would have done anything else. Jesus asked him to accept, show mercy or give a compliment, or be like a Samaritan, to do what this Samaritan did, anything else. So what is, he, what is he doing? He's exposing his heart. Why? Because what would he have to do to obey the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, he'd have to be willing to give up an ingrained hatred of the Samaritans that he had, wouldn't he? And he also knows he's going to lose his prestige with his fellow lawyers, for him to start accepting the Samaritans. They're, they're going to they're kick him out of the club. And also, the esteem with the people. So what's this doing? This is causing him to count the cost. 
What he would have to do to go and do likewise is to give up basically everything that he holds dear. Wouldn't he? He really would. He'd have to have a change of heart. And do we know who's the only one that could change his heart? Only God could do it. You know, I one time I had a, went into prison, the segregation unit, and I was talking to this man. He was a pretty bad individual, and he was a drug dealer and, and pretty involved in crime and whatever all else. And it was just one of those times where I could just tell that there was just an anointing there, the way the conversation went. I didn't always and don't always have a lot of people break down crying. Maybe when they look at me, but not, when I'm, not because I'm talking. But, but this guy did. I mean, it was just one of those moments where you can just tell, I could just tell God's spirit is dealing with him. And he was, he was broken before the Lord. And he is like wanting to be saved. So to me, I'm seeing God has opened his eyes. He's crying. But guess what happened? I come back the next week. I'm expecting this guy to be like, man, I've been reading my Bible and da, 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 da. And you know what it was? He says, well, you know what? I got thinking about all this after you left. And he goes, I'm just thinking, I got scores to settle out there. And I'm going to settle them. And I just don't really want anything. I don't want to hear. He didn't want to talk to me. I never got to talk to him really after that. So he's not willing to give that up, was he? And so what is he saying? Hey, I, I like, I know I'm wicked. I see that he clearly saw the cross and what the Lord had done. He's like, I'm not willing. He's like the rich young ruler. Walked away sorrowful. Because he couldn't give up that hatred in his heart. And only God can, can take that out of us, right? But what Jesus is doing, he's setting the difference between those that are the children of God and those that aren't, isn't he? So I know we looked at this a few weeks back. It isn't going to hurt to look at it again. You could just hold your place there and turn to Matthew 5. I want to reread this. Matthew chapter 5. In light of what we're talking about today, Matthew 5, 43, and Jesus says, You have heard that it has been said. This is what you've heard. You shall love thy neighbor and hate thine enemies. But he says, No, nah, I say unto you, the Lord Jesus Christ, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, that you're nothing more than a lawyer, a Pharisee, or a hypocrite. What reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And let's be honest. How many times do most of us fall into the last category? That we love those that love us. Honestly. Because that's easy, isn't it? But Jesus has said what? And he's saying that in this parable that we're looking at. That the ones that are truly born of God and God's children will do what? They will love those that hate them, won't we? That's the proof that you're one of his. So let me ask you, who is that person in your life now that hates you and that mistreats you and uses you? Do you just not talk to them? Do you avoid them? Would you not do them good? Do you refuse to pray for them or bless them? So I had a young man in this class I was at when I was in college. We had this whole big thing where I was the, the victim of believing in non-resistance at a Baptist college. It probably <laughs> wasn't a good situation. But anyways, uh, getting through that class, you know, uh, I didn't have too many friends there, but there was one young man that came up to me, and we, he talked a little bit about the whole non-resistance. He says, I've really been thinking about that. I like some things you had to say. I'm like, really? <laughs> but, but anyways, uh, but what he did tell me was this. This is, this is the point I want to get to there. When he was like seven years old, he's in his kitchen with his mother, and as he's standing in there, this boyfriend, ex-boyfriend she had, 
comes into the kitchen, pulls out a gun, and he is standing, this is right in front of him, pulls the gun out and shoots his mother square in the head in front of this young man, seven years old. And he told me, he said, he said, I hated that man. I hated him growing up. He took my mother from me. He goes, my mother treated me. It was just a beautiful relationship. Took the number one thing out of my life. I hated him. And he said, only God, God showed me that only God could take that hatred from my heart. And I saw I needed him to do it. And I needed to be saved. Because without his salvation, and I, I couldn't be saved. He said he cried out to the Lord to change his heart, and he did. And he said, you know what I did? He said, I, have, I visit that man regularly now in jail. Now, that is a changed heart, isn't it, that can do that? He got the message of the parable. So I don't think this parable here, as I said, is not a motivational story for us to start, hey, we need to go down to the food bank. Jesus is saying, go thou and do likewise, or, you know, visit hospitals all the time, or whatever, right, to see if the salvation that we have, we want to prove something, we want to earn something. I'm saying, that's not the, the point of the story, is it? Because we can't earn salvation by trying to go out and be good Samaritans. But the point is, it's to show, do you really have the love of God in your heart? All of us. And so, you know, turn over to, if you would, please turn to 1 John 3. And then John is, in essence, saying what Jesus is saying here. So this is, look, we need to examine ourselves. We can't say because we've been in this church, any of us, 30 years, that, hey, oh, we know we're born again because we don't do certain things. Like Paul was saying, we got certain outward things we don't do, and we get along with everybody. What just may be for 30 years, you've been in here with an unregenerated heart that outwardly does a lot of things, but you really have bitterness, anger, hatred, Unwilling, you're a selfish person, and you, you may do some good things, but in essence, you really don't like to be bothered. And so, we look here in 1 John 3, look what he says here in verse 14. So John, if you know, if you read 1 John, he's given tons of tests for people that you want to know you have eternal life like that man did. This book is filled with tests of how you can know, and this is one of them. Here's how you can know you have eternal life, and he says that. We can know, John says, verse 14, John, 1 John 3. We can know that we have passed from death unto life. And how can we know that? Because we love the brethren. He that loves not his brother does what? Abides in death. It doesn't matter what you say, what prayer you made, where you go to church, who your parents are, does it? Verse 15, whosoever hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life living dwelling in him and this is how we perceive the love of God because he laid down his life for us and as a result of that he's saying we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren but whoso as anyone that has this world's good and sees his brother have need and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him. John says then, you do that? How dwells the love of God in him? And that word for world's good is bios. And what that means is what it takes to survive in this world. That's mainly looked at as possessions, but it can be more than that. And he's saying, you see somebody that has a need, a brother, that is, let's say, out of work, and you got a job, and here this guy's got four kids and plenty of money, saying you can look at that, and your thing is not, I want to help him out however I can, but to just pass by on the other side and let someone else take care of it. Or you see somebody that you know is having a struggle, and you, you know that you could give them a word of encouragement, but man, I'm just not that kind of person, da-da-da-da-da and you're not going to do it, and you're just going to pass by on the other side? Or you know someone that really, really needs prayer, and they'll never know you prayed for them. Are you going to spend that time on your knees that no one will know, no glory will ever come to you? Are you going to spend that time on your knees, or are you just going to let someone else do the praying for them? 
or you know somebody that's lonely and you don't, it's just a little inconvenient to somehow get around them or have them over or whatever, and on and on and on. So that's talking about brothers, but I'm saying what if that person that had all of those same needs, because maybe we can do it with our brothers, but what if it's an enemy that needs your prayer? Or like Star was talking about, what, how can we be around somebody and see their need of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the answer for all of what's ailing them, ultimately, isn't it? And we're not praying and looking for a way to somehow share that with them? Now, like I said, you've got to use wisdom, because sometimes you can cause more harm and drive somebody away by just being too much in somebody's face or just not using wisdom about it. But pray and let God open the door, but sometimes you've got to just swallow your fear of what they're going to think, and just step on out there and let your compassion. God will honor that. Isn't that what he's saying here? Because that's the greatest bios. What do we need for life? I mean, what is a greater need than a person's soul? Honestly. So he's saying here, and this is the point of the parable and the point that we have in John. Look what, what he goes on to say here. How can you say the love of God dwells in him? In verse 18, John says, my little children. Well, we should not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And can I translate that, the Solinger translation? Talk is cheap. That's how I would translate that, verse 18. So look how you got t your tongue gives out words, and the truth should result in deeds. And the priest and the Levite, they would have been the tongue and words guys, wouldn't they? They're preaching and teaching the law. But who is the Samaritan? He is the truth that results in deeds, the truth of God that results in deeds, right? And so he says, hey... When that's the way it is for you, verse 19, and doing that, knowing that you love in deed and in truth, verse 19, and that is how we know that we are of the truth and we can assure our hearts before the Lord. So when you're walking in love like that, you can have an assurance before the Lord. And he goes on to talk about that carries into your prayer life because you're living that way and showing the love that he commands us to right? Then when you go to pray, you've got that assurance. He's hearing you. And that answer, you have it, right? So back to uh, Luke, if you would, please. So listen to this. Listen to this, these words at the end of this story, parable that Jesus is telling not the parable, even when he's talking to this lawyer in verse 37. And don't just look at him as words on a page, but listen to him as words to you personally, to your heart, from the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is he saying to all of us here? Go and do thou likewise. So to Christians, it's saying that is how we should be living. And if you're not you know, we need to make some adjustments, right? But what if in your heart you're saying, I can't live that way. I can't give up my hatred and bitterness and resentment. Then that's what I'm saying. Be honest about it. And maybe it is that your heart has never been changed. This says if you hate your brother or your sister or you're carrying resentment and bitterness, it says you're a murderer. And eternal life doesn't abide in a murderer. And it's better to get it, all of us, let's get it straightened out today than find out when it's too late. Right? It might be embarrassing, but hey, I wouldn't be thinking anything. What if I had to stand up here next time and say, you know what, I realized I just wasn't regenerated. I had issues. God showed me that. Would it make anybody mad in here? I wouldn't make me mad at all. I'd be like the angels in heaven rejoicing. So, one sign, hey, listen, we need that one sign that you're born again is not that you praise loud, you quote Bible verses, you read your Bible all the day, you pray and fast, because the lawyers did all of those things. That's not how you can know. But here's a clear sign, is how do you treat your enemies in need? Because the unregenerate cannot show them love. It's impossible. It's only a supernatural 
thing that the Holy Spirit through the new birth enables us to do, isn't it? It really is. So let me ask you, how do you view your neighbor as only those that treat you well? Or is that the only ones? And then, but then how do you look at, you know, let's say, people of other races, black people? What about Muslims? Do, do we hate Muslims? And I made a joke way back when. I mean, I really probably shouldn't have. But because I really have no animosity towards Muslims, we need to pray for their salvation. It, that doesn't matter that they're lining up Christians on the beaches and chopping off their heads. Right? So then do we hate those people? That's what the Samaritans and Jews were doing. The love of God says, I want to pray. And if they're chopping your head off, what should we be doing by the grace of God? Praying, doing like Stephen's doing when he's getting stoned. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we know where we're going, don't we? They're headed to a bad place unless God grants them repentance. So listen, you got... Jews hating Samaritans, Samaritans hating Jews, and that racism goes both directions. You know, my first pastor was an ex-Black Panther up in, up in Columbus, Ohio, and he told me, hey, if you went to high school with me, I would have mugged you, because that's what they did. So what is the answer to all these race problems with the ISIS group, with all these race riots that are going over? It's not that we need to enforce the laws more. Is that really, from a Christian standpoint, is that the answer to race relations? The answer to race relations for us and them is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That'll break down all the hatred, all the barriers that are there. That's what Ephesians 2 is talking about. The barrier that's there breaking down those walls. We become one in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no longer should be any barriers. So back, I took this revival class, there was this preacher named Samuel Davies in Virginia years back during the Revolutionary War, and he was a pioneer. But you know what? That man, just a lot of respect for him, he was a saved individual and a preacher that brought revival to that area around Williamsburg and, and those areas in Virginia. But you know what that man did? They had slave plantations all around him, and he's like, hey, he would preach to those slaves, get him in all kinds of trouble. He was writing John and Charles Wesley over in England and say, look, I need books to help these people learn to read so they can read the Bible for themselves. And that's what he did. And he got a lot of criticism for it. And George Whitfield, you all have heard of him, preached during the Great Awakening. He would preach to the slaves. He knew they were men with souls. I'm telling you, the gospel is the answer to race relation. And Jim Cimbala, you all know, a lot of you know who he is. He said, a sign of a man of God that has truly been converted is a love for all races. If you all could just hang with me here, I'd just like to read this. So how many of you have ever read Christ the Healer with F.F. F. Bosworth? Quite a few. So he lived in the early 1900s. Tremendous. All I ever knew about him was he'd written this book. Tremendous miracles took place under his ministry. Uh, he knew John G. Lake and, and others. That's all I knew about this guy. And here, I got this somehow. I don't even know how I got it. I got this art. He wrote a letter to his mother in 1911. And just bear with me and I'll be done. So he goes to this place in Hearns. And these colored people, they call them colored people. That's why I said that. Black people. They built this brush arbor because the white people in Hearns, in the town of Hearns, the, the black people were getting the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the white people are seeing something is going on with these people. They're hearing testimonies, seeing miracles. They, they know they've got something. So they want to come. This is down in the south. So they want to come and hear this. So they built what they called a brush arbor next to the tent where the black people met. And the black people are sharing their testimonies and preaching. And the white people are packing this place out. But here's the problem. Oh, we can't have black people praying for us. So they contact Bosworth. And they ask him, to, hey, can you come and teach us about the way of the Holy Spirit? And he said, I was tired, I didn't want to come, but I came. And so he's got two huge audiences of people he's speaking to simultaneously, black people and white people. And he said, God anointed that service, and it was blessed, and tremendous things happened. But listen to this. So we're talking about having to love your enemies, and this man, Bosworth, was spirit-filled. He said, I was tired and thought I wouldn't preach, preach that night, but the people wanted me to, and then God anointed me for it. And as I was on my way to spend the night with another white preacher 
who had also come that day, we were attacked by several roughs, one of whom had a revolver with which, as he and the others cursed us for coming there, as they said, to put them on a level, the same level with those D niggers, as the wording, that's what it says. They seem determined to shoot us both down at once. So these men have come, they're going to shoot them. And this, listen, this really happened more than once with white preachers. I know that. A. A. Allen had the same thing happen. You preach to black people as a white preacher, you are in trouble down there. So they're going to shoot him. They seem determined to shoot us both down at once. God was wonderfully with me, and with perfect coolness, I told them that I was doing God's will the very best I knew how and was ready to die and would offer no resistance to anything God permitted them to do. But if they had no objections, I would like to speak a few words of explanation before they shot us. And at first, they refused me this privilege, but finally said I could say what I wanted to. I then told them that I came with no thought or desire of pushing them on a level with anyone, but that it was the white people who wanted me to come to help them, and that I had done the very best I knew and was willing to take anything God permitted. Well, with this explanation, they decided not to kill him, but insisted that we should take the next train. So we went to the depot. I bought my ticket to Dallas, and the other brother went to his room for his suitcase. And while he was gone, I was waiting for my train, and a larger mob of men of about 25 took me from the depot, knocked me down, pounded me with heavy hardwood clubs with all their power cursing and declaring that I would never preach again when they were through with me. As they pounded me with these heavy clubs, I offered no resistance, but committed myself to God and asked him not to let the blows break my spine. God stood wonderfully by me, and no bones were broken except a slight fracture on my left wrist. And when they left off pounding me with the clubs, as I got up, others of the mob who had no clubs knocked me down, hitting me in the head with their fist. I was knocked down several times, but was not for a moment unconscious, which was a miracle of God's care. I was not then allowed to take my train, but I had to walk nine miles to Calvert, where I got on a train on Sunday at 2 p.m. for home. He writes, the suffering during this pounding was terrible, but as soon as it was over, I looked away from my wounds and bruises to God, and he took away all suffering, suffering and put his power and strength upon me so that I carried a heavy suitcase with my right arm over nine miles. Now listen to what this man says. Go and do thou likewise, Jesus said. He said, I never had the slightest anger or ill feeling towards those men who had beat me so cruelly, and the walk to Calvert in the dark with moonlight was the most heavenly experience of my life. And the Lord gave me wonderful intercession for those men that he should forgive them and prepare them for his coming. He writes to his mom, my flesh was mashed to the bone on my back down nearly to my knees. But since the beating, he says, I have been free from all suffering. Others have been made nervous and have broken down and wept as they were shown the wounds on my body. But I have been absolutely free from nervousness, no fear, and not even tired. And he writes this, this last paragraph. He has been so precious to me since that I have thanked him many times for being privileged to know something of the fellowship of his sufferings. If this mobbing was the result of some unwise thing I had done or for speaking anything but his own sweet message, I would be very sorry. But since it came for plain obedience in preaching his gospel to every creature, it has given me great joy to experience this, which was so common among the early Christians in the first centuries of the church. I feel like I am several notches higher in the Christian life. Have you ever thought about that? Because I have. I thought, what if they come over here and they're starting to throw us in jail and they're starting to beat us and mistreat us and you see the anger and the spirits in their countenance where they hate you? Are we going to be able to pray for them like this man did? And they're doing it to our kids too. But we're going to have to have a changed heart like what we're talking about here with the Good Samaritan, aren't we? That only God can do. And look to Him for the strength and grace. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go before the Lord. Father, we just thank You, Lord, for this 
story, this message, and I just ask, Father, that you'll help us all to all be honest and examine our hearts and to see if we pass the test, Lord, that we truly love the brethren and are willing to show compassion to others and, and especially, Lord, our enemies. And if we need to make any adjustments in our thinking, Lord, I just ask that you'll do that and help us through all this by your Holy Spirit and, and just have mercy on all of us and help us to have the grace on our lives by your Holy Spirit for these days that lie ahead and that we can truly manifest the supernatural love of the Lord Jesus Christ to this world, that they would not know what they were doing to persecute us. And I just thank you that you'll do that for all of us, and we thank you for your presence here today and for speaking to us, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can all stand to your feet, please. Peace, peace. 